2: In 60 cities across the world, Extinction Rebellion activists are calling for more action on climate change. Is freer trade
3: good for the climate? Trade cannot solve all the problems of the world, but it can be a factor if it's well done. And trade is also about trading environmentally friendly goods, and that I fully agree that should be much cheaper and easier. And how are streaming services changing the music we listen to?
4: The idea is to essentially get that earworm into the listener as soon as possible.
2: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. First up today, the world economy is going through a period of growing uncertainty. The trade war between America and China, big central bank balance sheets and low inflation have conspired to drag central bankers into the political spotlight. At the same time, the world economy is behaving in unpredictable ways. Even though much of the rich world has record employment rates, almost all of them are undershooting their inflation targets. The European Central Bank has restarted quantitative easing and sent rates deeply negative in an attempt to hit its inflation target, but that's been met with criticism from some countries and some former central bankers. What does all of this mean for the future of the global economy? Henry Kerr is the economists economics editor. Hi Henry. Hello. So Explain to us, the world's economies are behaving in a strange way. What's that?
0: Well, there's all sorts of ways in which the world economy has sort of gone a bit topsy-turvy, inside out, upside down. One is negative interest rates. Uh, central banks uh, in Europe, in Japan, in Switzerland, Sweden have negative interest rates. Uh, but it's also that a quarter of all government and corporate bonds worldwide are trading at negative rates. That's one unusual thing. Another is that uh, inflation's not behaving as expected, On Friday, America hit its lowest unemployment rate in half a century, but wage growth fell beneath 3%. And then you've got the fact that uh, central banks have bought up an immense amount of government debt over the past decade. And it seems as if this is going to be a permanent thing now. Uh, Europe has just restarted its QE program or is in the process of doing so. Uh, The Federal Reserve, over the last few weeks, has also recently begun growing its balance sheet. And so it looks like we're entering a world where central banks permanently own a lot of government debt. And that's strange. And then, of course, you have the trade war. You would expect that the trade war, which has sent tariffs on trade between America and China shooting up, would be an inflationary phenomenon. In fact, it's proving to be the opposite because it's knocked confidence so much that the world economy seems to be deteriorating. And, and as a result, interest rates are falling and inflation expectations are falling further. So there's just all these sort of strange ways in which the world economy isn't quite behaving as the textbooks say it should or really as it's behaved in the past.
2: Presumably, if the trade war just goes on forever, there's going to be an impact on inflation eventually.
0: You'd have thought so. Tariffs can't go up and up without inflation taking off at some point. I think the question is whether or not that happens before or after a trade war has hit economic confidence so much that the world economy has gone into a downturn anyway, in which case you have a sort of countervailing influence Of lack of confidence, lack of investment, causing prices to sag, which seems to be the dominant effect at the moment. But certainly, you can't have a trade war forever without uh, creating some inflation, I would have thought.
2: Is there any grand unified theory emerging as to why things are behaving in this strange manner?
0: Well, I think the fundamental cause of uh, low interest rates is that there's more saving in the world than profitable investment opportunities. That's made worse by the trade war. That's why it's had so far a a sort of disinflationary impact. What that does when there's lots of saving and few profitable investment opportunities is it pushes down the rates of interest which balance the economy. And, you know, there's nothing in economic theory that says that that rate, which balances saving and investment, can't uh, fall below zero. Uh, There's no natural limit on it, but there is a limit on the ability of central banks to cut interest rates, posed by the fact that people can always hold cash at a guaranteed zero percent return, and that means because central banks struggle to find ways around that lower bound on rates, that then feeds into them undershooting their inflation targets. Plus, you have evolution in the way that inflation is set; it's set more globally nowadays in a globalised world. And so I think there's an increased extent to which disinflationary forces for both interest rates and inflation can spill across borders.
2: And I presume that's partly to do with the huge move to retail being online, not just retail to consumers, but also between businesses.
0: Yes. Well, that's one of the factors people talk about sort of affecting the inflation process. And this is a big fight in economics, I'd say, because it is clear that online retail has increased, I'd say, the degree of certainly price competition. Uh, Economics says, though, that just one thing in the uh, economy, getting cheaper, shouldn't really matter for your inflation rate, uh, because the central bank can always just respond to that. Uh, Policymakers can always achieve whatever inflation rate they want. And in the long term, that really does have to be true. It's really hard to think of a world where in the long term, inflation is determined by things other than how much money is out there in a simplified sense, which is something that is under the central bank's control. But I think when you look back over the last few years and look at the Missing of the inflation targets worldwide, some of the things that central bankers haven't anticipated have emanated from online retail and from technological change more broadly.
2: And so now if we look at the central banks and these policymakers, they and the governments in the countries where they're operating have to try and balance fiscal and monetary policies. And that has been a big problem and cause for um, Tension really between the two, hasn't it?
0: Absolutely. So I would say the fashion over the past decade has been for fiscal austerity and monetary easing on the whole. uh, That's definitely the case in Europe, where there's been a big emphasis on balancing budgets, while the central bank has engaged in QE and, and, and negative rates and so on. The issue is that in this world of low rates and ownership of lots of government debt by the central bank, the lines between fiscal and monetary policy become somewhat blurred. Because it is true that if your central bank holds a lot of government debt, uh, that creates fiscal space for the government. It becomes easier for them to run budget deficits. And you can see this in the country that's furthest down this path, Japan, where the central bank owns over 90% of GDP worth of government debt. uh, And that makes Japan's really high public debt of 240% of GDP, or thereabouts, more sustainable and so when you have the government doing fiscal stimulus, as it has been in Japan, and the central bank buying up the bonds, and it's not clear that the central bank is ever going to offload those bonds, you've sort of come to combine monetary and fiscal policy, really.
2: And is that going to happen everywhere? Are we all going to end up looking like Japan?
0: Well, this is the interesting thing, that because central bank balance sheets are now growing again in, in Europe and have, have begun to grow, as I said, in, in America, uh, you can increasingly make the case that this government debt is never going to come off the uh, – the, or a large amount of government debt is never going to come off the balance sheets of the central bank. Uh, and that means that the world does begin to look a bit more uh, Japanified. Uh, certainly that's the case in Europe where the European central bank has uh, restarted quantitative easing, that is bond buying, and the hawks in Europe who have been objecting to this vociferously – Certainly one of the things they say is that QE is irresponsible because it lets governments off the hook because they don't have to get their fiscal house in order if the ECB is buying the debt.
2: And is there anything that could be done to try to avoid this fate of turning into, you know, endless government debt, endless bond buying, uh, a future in which none of this is going to be resolved really. It just all ends up staying on balance sheets.
0: I think it's less that that's necessarily a problem. I don't think that's something that's sort of unmanageable. But I do think that it poses political challenges because there are sort of two risks as central banks move more into the terrain of fiscal policy. On the one hand, you might say that you could come to have a sort of rule by technocracy where central banks are telling governments what deficits and debt they should be running uh, because they're out of monetary ammunition. They need fiscal policymakers to do the job. So, for instance, Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB has been calling on uh, European governments to do more fiscal stimulus and some people have said that you know central banks should be weighing into the fiscal debate a lot more but that poses issues for democracy because fiscal policy is tax and spend that's the sort of central power of government really so that's one risk you sort of have technocrats that are too empowered the other risk is the opposite. You have politicians wading onto territory that has traditionally been the terrain of technocrats and the central bank because the central bank's got to think about how to juice the economy and the politicians can kind of see uh, the potential for the central bank to fund their spending and it's sort of going cap in hand to the central bank saying please fund my favourite projects and I don't think that's a good idea either so I think the world's got to sort of chart a course between those two extremes.
2: Thanks Henry. And you can hear more about these shifts in the world economy and inflation in a special report in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. We've heard about concerns over the global economy, but there's another element of trade which is increasingly being criticised. It's environmental impact. Can freer trade and addressing climate change work in tandem? It's something that leaders in both the public and the private sector considered at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum in New York. The Economist's editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddoes, chaired a panel with New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, the European Commissioner for Trade, Cecilia Malmström, Citigroup CEO, Michael Corbett, and Credit Suisse CEO, Tijan Tiam. Zanny started by asking Jacinda Ardern, Is free trade good for the climate?
5: Let's start with our free trade agreements. We have the ability when we negotiate, be it multilateral or bilateral agreements, to make sure that we are embedding environmental principles within them that are in keeping with our stated aspirations and goals. Secondly, let's use the WTO to remove the distortions that currently exist and uh, fossil fuel subsidies to the tune of $500 billion is an obvious example and yet for 10 years we have been trying to remove those and thirdly let's incentivise. Why don't we create specific trade tools that say, well, between ourselves, we will eliminate tariffs on goods and services that will address climate issues. So the answer is yes, but we haven't developed that and delivered that fully.
6: Commissioner Malmstrom, you have, as a Trade Commissioner of the EU, really pushed this in your trade deals. So can you talk a bit about how you think you can
3: incorporate climate change goals in trade agreements? Well, I agree very much with the Prime Minister that if trade is well done, it can be something that supports a sustainable development. We are in the European Union embedding in all our trade agreements strong chapters on sustainable development and references in the last ones to the Paris Agreement, and that is a way to keep countries engaged, and also because a trade agreement is part of a bigger cooperation partnership, we can also cooperate in research, in innovation, etc., to make it happen.
6: So just to be clear on that, that means there is a linkage between a trade agreement and the climate agreement. So if a country has a trade agreement with the EU, it can't then
3: leave the Paris Agreement. No, and that is why we cannot right now have a comprehensive trade agreement with the US. I'm going to come back onto more of that tariff stuff, but I want to bring our two financiers
6: in here, our two bankers. How much would the financial flows change if you actually got rid of fossil fuel subsidies? Would that dramatically affect the allocation of capital that you would give to those industries? Tijan.
7: Look, I think that process is underway anyway. When you talk to the oil and gas sector, that dialogue is now at the CEO level. So it's a bit difficult to predict the direct impact on trade. What I think is that All those efforts are going to produce better quality growth and more sustainable growth, which will then in turn lead to better quality trade, if you wish.
6: Absolutely. But if I can almost ask the same question to you, Mike, if you manage to get rid of these subsidies, would that change the environment dramatically for the kinds of things that you would finance?
1: Well, I think one of the big things that would likely come out of it is today. What we see in the world in some ways is there's fear around this nexus of trade and climate. And what I mean by that is that while globalization has been great and trade has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, there's the other side of that around the protectionism of people having lost jobs. And I think as people then conflate climate into that, I fear that people pull back and move slower at those than they otherwise would. So, one, I think it would be great to do that. And I think we would see some shifts Right. Because, again, you just look at what's going on between the U.S. and China. We've seen trade routes realign, manufacturing realign very quickly. So I think as subsidies went, prices changed. You would see manufacturers, you'd see demanders of goods and services realigning against that quickly.
6: Are you going to be pushing for that as part of your focus on, uh, you know, greener, the financial sector's role in, in assisting efforts to combat climate change? Will you be loudly pushing for reduced subsidies for fossil fuels? (laughs)
7: <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, short answer, yes, but not loudly, because we tend to think that uh, lobbying and pushing is more effective if it's done uh, in not too loud a manner. And that's what we do with the companies we finance. We engage constructively with them to get them to change, and we find that more effective often than right. noise.
6: I, I wanted to add turn, because we've got very little time left, to another n- not uncontroversial subject, which is the use of carbon tariffs. The European Union, I know is, with with the new president of the European Commission, climate is very high on the agenda. And there are increasing calls for, well, you know, maybe we have to introduce carbon adjustment tariffs in the European Union. If other people aren't going to pull their weight and we're going to do more, then let's introduce those. Do you think that's likely to happen, Commissioner? And would it be a good thing for
3: the global trading system? It would certainly be a good uh, thing to do so. And the more countries involved in this, the better, of course. So we would seek to broadly cooperate. Exactly how to do it is, of course, still not uh, clear. Uh, If we can do a broad initiative there, I think it would be really, really good for the climate. But probably you have to start... A little bit. Prime Minister, what's your view, both of the likelihood and also the politics? I mean, yeah. the
6: WTO is already under huge strain. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you suddenly have the Europeans saying we're going to introduce carbon tariffs.
3: Well, it has to be in compliance with WTO rules, of course. Otherwise, it's, it's not Would the US not just leave?
5: Yeah, and, and I think you've already raised the complexity with taking that as an option. There'd be definitional issues, there'd mm-hmm. be issues around how it was um, constructed and maintained. I think actually, if we're looking for speed, which is ultimately what we need, then Let's use some of the tools we already have. If we were all using some domestic and appropriate form of carbon pricing, then we would be removing some of the disparity that exists between us. And this is a huge um, issue domestically. How do I convince uh, different industries in New Zealand that it's uh, important for us to have a comprehensive emissions trading scheme in carbon pricing if they look at their international competitors and see that that's not applying elsewhere.
6: Do any of you have any expectation that this can happen at a multilateral level?
1: I think we've seen in the numbers that have been talked about this week and before that we probably need to take more radical action than that, that we need to change the paradigm and we've got to incentivize people to innovate so that we really bend the curve.
6: Absolutely. And that's extremely important. But who is the we in this? I mean, we have two members, extremely esteemed members of the private sector, two government uh, representatives. Is this a um, public-private partnership? Is it the public sector? Is it the private sector? Because... Yes. Uh, okay, all, well, all let's all, put some pressure on that.
1: It really. It's all of it. It's yeah. got to be. You,
7: to
1: be. You know, when you think about where we are today and you think about what's going on, in many ways, I would describe the way we're going that in different directions. I would argue that the business leaders that I meet with cities approach, um, certain Tijan's approach, is it's the tone from the top and we're driving it and we're putting pronouncements and we're putting markers out there. The public sector is kind of coming at this from a groundswell perspective and the leaders are kind of coming After and understanding that, I think if you get business in a room, you would find much closer alignment. And I think the tone from the top of saying, we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but we're going to figure it out. So
6: all of that is very upbeat, and and I hope you do all get together and do that. But one concern is, are you running out of time in the court of public opinion? Because if you see the people who have the energy, who are bringing the focus on the need to act on the climate... They do think that trade is a bad idea and that it is bad for the climate. And how do you change that narrative? How do you bring these two together so that the climate activists don't think that it's a bad thing? Commissioner,
3: well, we have actually tried to engage with them uh, in, in the European Union, with the climate activists, consumer organizations, trade unions, others who, who might have critical views on that. Try to listen to them, to engage them in the uh, negotiations, open up so they can see what we're doing, but also listening to their advice and knowledge and see how we can include that in our trade agreements. Trade cannot solve all the problems of the world, but it can be a factor if it's well done. And trade is also about trading environmentally friendly goods, and that I fully agree, that should be
5: much cheaper a bit easier.
4: If, yeah,
5: I, I, time is running out in the court of public opinion because time is running out for us to address climate change. So I think it's right that they hold our feet to the fire. But on trade, actually, one of the issues we've had is that it's become really a tool for blame. Actually, we have to start taking some domestic ownership. Trade cannot carry the brunt of the blame, but it can actually provide some of the answers. The more that we do that, the more we will bring people with us. But it should never, ever be used as a tool for blame. We have to take some ownership. We have very little time. Very
7: very important point on that. I think it's it's vital to acknowledge the negative effects of trade. Too often people like us who are pro-trade say, well, the benefits outweigh the downsides. That's not sufficient as an answer. And that's what the activists are saying. We need to have explicit answers to the negative effects, not just saying what the positive effects are outweigh them and i think that's really a central
2: point our thanks to all of the panelists to zani and the bloomberg global business forum it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
4: and think about
2: work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com and finally music from wax cylinders to mp3s as technology has advanced so is the way we listen And though there's a resurgence in the number of record collectors, most of us are now used to the convenience of listening to music via streaming. Last year, streaming accounted for almost half of the industry's $19.1 billion revenue worldwide. But now these services are changing not just how you're listening, but what you're listening to. Sam Blake is a writer for The Economist based in New York. Hi, Sam. Hi, Owen. So explain to me, how do these streaming uh, services divide up their revenues between the various songs that people listen to?
4: So there's a total pooling of all of the listening data and all of the revenue that these services, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, and so forth, make get distributed to the artists proportionate to the amount of listens that they have. And what's important, among other things, is that a listen only counts if a user stays tuned for at least 30 seconds.
2: You know, the old news adage that if it bleeds, it leads. I presume they try to get the good stuff up front
4: now. Exactly. The idea is to get to the good stuff quicker. And, you know, not every artist is doing this. It tends to be more in in pop music. But the economic incentives are making songs not only have introductions uh, that are much shorter so that it bleeds really quickly, but also uh, that the entire song tends to be shorter as well.
2: And what about hooks or choruses? Do things have to get catchier and repeated more and that sort of thing?
4: Well, that tends to happen as well. For instance, in a very popular song, Senorita, by Shawn Mendes. The hook comes in 15 seconds into the song, but even before then, right from the beginning, there's this little refrain in the background that previews that hook. The idea is to essentially get that earworm into the listener as soon as possible.
2: So a lot of what's listened to on streaming is via the, the playlists that they make, isn't it, that they change every week and, you know, specialist ones for Latin American music or if you want to listen to pop or you want a particular speed or you want to work out or whatever. How do you
4: get yourself onto one of those Streaming playlists are super important. They account for a third of all of the listens. To get on one of them is actually a little unclear. There's these essentially opaque algorithms that the streaming platforms have kept secret from artists with an intent to basically stop them from gaming the system. But when certain folks analyze the data of how their artists and how their songs are performing, they can sort of reverse engineer what they think those playlists are looking for and try to create their tracks accordingly. That's one of the hypotheses around why these songs are on average getting shorter and having earlier choruses.
2: So it's rather like a sort of a new evolutionary pressure, isn't it? In comes some new system that you have to conform to and over time music changes
4: really rather quickly. Yes, exactly. Like you said, the medium has always shaped music pretty much since the beginning. The size of a 45 record played a huge impact on the normal length of a song. And we're seeing new changes underlying the economics that are shaping the way songs are made today. And I'm sure as things continue to evolve, that will remain dynamic. So one of the things people
2: say about the shift to um, selling things online whether it's books or whether it's music is that it allows for a long tail you know people who couldn't have found you know Paraguayan harp music or something can now find that but at the same time we have this dynamic going on that makes huge huge hits songs that are listened to tens of millions of times because they go onto some playlist what about the sort of middling artists the people who would have been say in the top ten when I was a child I'm much older than you Sam
4: <laughs> I don't know how much older but so so, the middling artists are struggling. Whereas this long tail gives anyone in the world an opportunity to access virtually anyone else, those in the middle are facing much more competition than they otherwise would have in an earlier era. So, there are different kinds of movements that are actually pushing back against this streaming model of compensating artists based on their stream share and trying to shake things up in a way to allow the payment to be a little more what they call equitable. For example, by distributing the revenue that comes from one particular user proportionate only to the artist that he or she listens to. And what's the overall effect of that? Remains to be seen. No major streaming platform has rolled it out in its entirety. There is a French streaming company called Deezer that's planning on rolling it out in 2020. But there are a lot of different factors that will actually determine how the allocation of the revenue shakes out. So, for example, if there is a higher proportion of uh, heavy listeners listening to the mainstream playlists, then it's possible that some of those superstar artists will see a bit of a cut in favour of the more middling artists, but it really remains to be seen. No one's quite sure. And as one of the executives at Deezer said, until we try, we won't know. So we'll have to wait and see. Thanks, Sam. All right. Thank you, Helen. Nice talking to you.
2: And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.